Endurance in office. It would scarcely be possible to imagine a more intensely political family than the one into which William Pitt was born on the 28th of May, 1759. On his father's side, his great-grandfather, grandfather, and uncle had all been members of Parliament. His father, 25 years an MP, was now the leading minister of the land. On his mother's side, the Grenville family, one uncle was in the House of Lords, and two others were in the Commons. It was in the year of William's birth that the career of his father approached its zenith. Three years into what would later be known as the Seven Years' War, in which Britain stood as the only substantial ally of Prussia against the combined forces of France, Austria, Russia, Saxony, and Sweden, the Elder Pitt had become the effective commander-in-chief under King George II of the British prosecution of the war. He was not nominally the head of the government, the position of First Lord of the Treasury being held by his old rival, the Duke of Newcastle, but he was the senior minister in the House of Commons. Through his powerful oratory he dominated both Parliament and the Ministry, and was acknowledged as the effective leader of the administration. As Newcastle himself said in October of that year, No one will have a majority at present against Mr. Pitt. No man will, in the present conjuncture, set his face against Mr. Pitt in the House of Commons. From taking office at the age of 48 in 1756 as Secretary of State for the Southern Department, in the 18th century a British cabinet contained two Secretaries of State, compared to 15 today, and the Secretary of State for the Southern Department dealt with matters relating to Southern European countries, including France and Spain, Pitt had become the principal source of ministerial energy in both organizing for war and in preparing a strategy for Britain to do well out of it. It was Pitt who gave detailed instructions on the raising and disposition of the troops and the navy, and Pitt who insisted on and executed the objective of destroying the empire of France. As the French envoy, Francois de Boussy, was to complain to the leading French minister, the Duc de Choiseul, after meeting Pitt in 1761, this minister is, as you know, the idol of the people, who regard him as the sole author of their success. He is very eloquent, specious, wheedling, and with all the chicanery of an experienced lawyer. He is courageous to the point of rashness. He supports his ideas in an impassioned fashion and with an invincible determination, seeking to subjugate all the world by the tyranny of his opinions. Pitt seems to have no other ambition than to elevate Britain to the highest point of glory and to abase France to the lowest degree of humiliation. The elder Pitt spent a large proportion of his life visibly ill. He suffered from a wide range of ailments, all of which were then associated with gout. He was frequently lame, and also suffered from gout in the bowels and similar disorders. For him to give a speech in the commons with a walking stick, his body wrapped in flannels, was not uncommon. He would often retreat to his bed even at times of crisis, as this anecdote from the time of the Seven Years' War demonstrates, Mr. Pitt's plan, when he had the gout, was to have no fire in his room but to load himself with bedclothes. At his house at Hayes he slept in a long room, 
at one end of which was his bed, and his ladies at the other. His way was, when he thought the Duke of Newcastle had fallen into any mistake, to send for him and read him a lecture. The Duke was sent for once and came when Mr. Pitt was confined to bed by the gout. There was, as usual, no fire in the room, the day was very chilly, and the Duke, as usual, afraid of catching cold. The Duke first sat down on Mrs. Pitt's bed as the warmest place, then drew up his legs into it as he got colder. The lecture unluckily continuing a considerable time, the Duke at length fairly lodged himself under Mrs. Pitt's bedclothes. A person from whom I had the story suddenly going in saw the two ministers in bed at the two ends of the room, while Pitt's long nose and black beard, unshaved for some days, added to the grotesqueness of the scene. In 1760, the accession of George III set in motion a chain of events which led to Pitt's departure from government. Favouring a more hard-line approach to Spain than his colleagues would accept, Pitt wished to continue in office only on the basis of assured control of the government, an ambition irreconcilable with the new king's advancement of his great favourite, the Earl of Bute. Pitt left office at loggerheads with his colleagues, but as a towering figure in public repute, which the king and Bute recognised by conferring on him and his descendants an annuity of £3,000 a year. As part of the same package, a title was given to Pitt's wife, who became Baroness Chatham. Out of office, he could now bestow more attention on his devoted wife and five children, including William, now two years old. However many wise decisions were taken by the elder Pitt, few compared in wisdom to his decision in 1754 to marry Lady Hester Grenville. At the age of 46, his decision to get married to someone he had known for years without apparently showing any previous romantic interest in her seemed sudden and strange. But Pitt had one eye on posterity. It may simply be that he woke up one morning, realizing that if he did not find a wife and produce a family now, he never would. In any event, it was a marriage of great and enduring strength, supported by deep mutual affection. Hester was thirty-three, and herself came from a powerful political family. The two families were already related, because Pitt's elder brother Thomas had married Hester's cousin. But much has always been made of the strikingly different characters of the Pitts and the Grenvilles. Where the Pitts were demonstrative, emotional and argumentative, the Grenvilles were cool, methodical and loyal. Pitts had a spirit of adventure, Grenvilles an inclination to caution. And where Pitts enjoyed foreign and military matters in politics, Grenvilles were more at home with finance and administration. The seemingly better balanced personality of the younger William Pitt is often ascribed to the fortuitous combination of these contrasting traits, although one of his biographers has commented, in the son, still more in the other children, was a full measure of the Grenville starchiness, which unhappily dulled the Pitt fire and brilliance. Most other commentators have concluded that alongside a brilliant and impetuous father, the younger Pitt was fortunate to have a mother who had resilience, 
a calm temperament, and an unfailing sense of duty. The young William Pitt was born at Hayes, near Bromley, in May 1759, after a labour rather severe, the fourth child in five years after Hester, John, and Harriet. The fifth and final child, James, was born two years later. It is clear that William soon emerged as a particular favourite of both mother and father. Hester wrote within a few weeks of his birth, I cannot help believing that little William is to become a personage. The children rode, bathed, went bird-nesting, and explored the countryside. Some of these things stuck. The younger Pitt rode regularly for exercise throughout his life, and inherited from his father a love of landscape gardening for relaxation. But even in his earliest years he did not put outdoor pursuits at the top of his list. He showed early on a sharp intellect, highly advanced powers of speech and memory, and a clear interest in public affairs. Inevitably, there are plenty of stories in which visitors to the Pitt household claim prescience about the child's future greatness. Lady Holland, mother of Charles James Fox, is meant to have said, I have been this morning with Lady Hester Pitt, and there is little William Pitt, not eight years old, and really the cleverest child I ever saw, and brought up so strictly and so proper in his behaviour that, mark my words, that little boy will be a thorn in Charles's side as long as he lives. Family correspondence refers to him as the philosopher, the young senator, and impetuous William. In 1766, when he was seven, his tutor wrote of him and his sister, Lady Hester and Mr. Pitt still continue to surprise and astonish as much as ever. And I see no...